All right. Welcome to the second episode of Product Market Fit Cafe. Um, my name is Luca, and today we have Nicholas Janssen, who is the founder of Blinkist. Hey. Nicholas, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Let's get into it then. Um, can you tell us a bit about what Blinkist is, uh, what the company does, and um, how much cap we raise, etc.? Give us a bit of an intro to the company. Sure. So, so Blinkist, um, very simply said, provides the key insights from the world's non best nonfiction books in 15-minute text and audio versions. So the problem we try to solve is that people uh, lack time to read books, and we provide them with the key insights uh, of these books. Um, the company was founded probably more than 10 years ago, and we have more than 20 million users worldwide today. Um, over the last 10 years, we have raised, I think, roughly $35 million in venture capital from investors like Inside, Greycroft, and Headline. And um, probably some of, some people have seen the news, but the company has been more or less profitable for the last few years. Amazing. That's great. That's a, that's a rare thing founders can say. Um, yeah, Blinkist <laughs> is quite a well-known company. I mean, how did, you know, I mean, today, obviously, but how did you guys come, come to that idea originally? Well, um, I think the, the initial idea for Blinkist was really based on a known problem. So I know my co-founders from, from university times, and we all had been avid readers back then. And we all started working full-time jobs after university, and I think we all felt that we lacked time to read books um, anymore. And we thought this sucks because all these cool ideas were out of reach for us. So basically, at the same time, we observed a trend or a change, and the change that we saw was that we spent more time reading on mobile phones compared to sitting down with a book and reading a book for hours. And we had this interesting insight saying, you, you know what, on one hand, we say we don't have enough time to read books anymore. On the other hand, we read more than ever. It's just we read differently these days. So instead of sitting down and said, we read five minutes here, five minutes there when we're waiting for the bus or when we're standing in line. And we just ask ourselves the question, how do we get the, how, what, how does a product need to look like that can bring the content or the insights from nonfiction books into a format that fits into our mobile lifestyles? And that was the initial idea of Blinkist. And then we just, yeah, basically solving our own problem in the beginning. And then luckily we found a few more people that have the same problem uh, and were willing to pay for Blinkist. All right, and so that's interesting. So how'd you, how'd you guys go, how'd you guys ultimately, like what's the first thing you guys built? Like what was that initial start to finding product market fit? So we, we started building an app right away. Um, and that was based on this, this idea that we have to build a format and we have to build an app that fits into people's lifestyles. A few people said we don't probably need to build an app, but back then we thought we knew, knew it better. In hindsight, probably could have started easier or simpler, but yeah, we built the first version of the app, which was only text-based back then. Um, the first version included 50 uh, key insights from, from non-fiction books, so um, in fact, very, very small. It took us probably two or three years to really find product market fit back then. Wait, sorry, before, uh, yeah. before, we, before we jump, so I have a question. Yeah. What, um, so you said you could have, looking back, you would have not built any tech. What, what would you have built? I mean, how would you have done it to prove it? Um, <clears throat> well, probably could have built an email newsletter to begin with. Um, like podcasts were not around back then, but probably today I would start with a podcast. Just like really testing the format and understanding if it really satisfies the needs of our users. So, because in the end, Blinkist is a content company, and probably the first step would have been to prove that the content really works and 
that people are really satisfied with the format itself, not building the app itself. The app is just a distribution channel to get to users. Um, yeah, obviously in hindsight it worked out, so everything is fine. But yeah, sure. um, just testing your initial hypotheses around, uh, like, do I really fulfill my users' needs with my product? Could have been, should not have been an app in the first place. Interesting. Okay. Yep. Sorry, I interrupted you. So, and it, it took you guys. So you said two to three years. Um, yeah. 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 Took long, long time. Um, I think what for us the the point when we found product market fit, which is it's always very hard to to say in hindsight when we actually found it, but I think what what changed. So we started with the the text version of Blinkist. Um, first, we only did German content. Then we figured out, okay, the German market itself is not big enough. We probably have to expand to the English-speaking market. So we stopped German content. We started producing English content, which opened up a broader market. But still, we we couldn't really find this point where customers were pulling the product out of out of the company in a way. So what we did, we spent a lot of time talking to users. Also, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. trying to understand what is different in the U.S. compared to Germany, for example. And the theme that popped up over and over again was audio. So that was like 2014, I think. That was pre the podcast boom. So it was not that obvious as it is today. But um, I talked to a lot of potential users and they said, well, I like your product, but I can only use it in audio. Because I spend three hours per day in my car, I can listen to stuff, but I'm too busy to read stuff. And this was kind of the initial insight that, okay, to really find a product that can scale, we probably have to switch from text only to audio. And it took us a while to to build it um, because it was kind of like a big investment. And this was pre-Series A, so we didn't cash was not we didn't have uh, a lot of cash back then. We had a very small team, so it was a big decision we made, but it was the right decision in hindsight um, to How go. How much cash did you have actually? I don't know. We had raised probably half a million back uh, until that point, maybe a little bit more. Um, the team was ten people, so very small. Wait, you ran you ran two to three years with five hundred k. Well, yeah, it was different times, yeah. Oh, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> maybe a little, <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit more, but yeah, less than a million, sure. for sure. Okay, and how did you, who, who was doing the recordings? Was it like your voice, like whose voice was it? <clears throat> so in the beginning, it was my co-founder's voice or like some of our content people's voice. Um, we had a few, uh, we did, a, I think, a call for, for narrators back then, and we found a few uh, freelance uh, narrators that recorded the first versions of the audio versions of Blinkist. But that was like really, I don't know what we paid them, maybe a hundred euros to record um, yeah, okay. the content for us. So we tried to be very capital efficient back then. We're still very capital efficient. Sure. Yeah. yeah profitability. <laughs> um, and so let's, let's take a bit deeper into like kind of the insights. So like, how are you, how are you interviewing people in the U S would you just grab them off the street? Like what did the customer development and, and insight loop look like? Yeah, so it was, I think it was a little bit more loose, kind of like talking to people, pitching the product, um, like trying to figure out what is the initial reaction. And if they were not screaming, this is the best product ever, trying to dig deeper what's missing. Because the, the feedback was always quite positive in terms of like to the solution, but the way we delivered the content in text and not in audio, that seemed to be a problem. So talk to people, um, always try to understand how does your day look like, uh, what type of content do you consume? When do you consume content? What's important in the content that, that you consume? 
and just like trying to be a little, little bit more systematic about the questions we asked. But in the end, it was more like a loose format, just talking to people on the streets and cafes on, at conferences. Um, and really quickly, you see this pattern emerging. And once I had a few first, once we saw the first few patterns, um, it was really about, okay, let's do a little bit more research. Let's validate that we have the right hypothesis here um, with customer research um, to build conviction, to really invest the money and the time to build audio versions. So how were you balancing the feedback with engineering requirements and feature requirements? I mean, you did mention that was kind <clears> of, you know, that you would have not done that going back, like. Yeah, so I think we, we got to that point where we built so much conviction around audio that for us, this became the main priority. So basically we stopped everything else and for three months, we had 80% of the team which were not many people, but 80% of the team uh, working on audio. And that was an initiative that started with content that spent to, to tech because we had to build the technology to, to offer, uh, to su support audio versions, but also to marketing because we suddenly were selling a new product. Suddenly it was not just text, but also audio. And yeah, through the research, we had built conviction and then it was all in on this feature. So what, what was that moment when you guys were like, all right, no more text, we're just doing audio? Yeah, I remember, so I think also what's important to say about this is that this was on the one hand, we built conviction um, to, to kick off, like to pull the trigger on audio. At the same time, everything else we did before didn't work out. So it was kind of like a meeting we had among the founders and we said, okay, we probably looking at our cash balance, we have one or two more chances or two more shot, shots on goal. So let's really make them count. And audio was this idea that has been a, had been around for a few months based on the research we did, but we also knew it's quite a big investment, uh, will take some time, and probably we only if we do audio, we can only try one thing. We cannot try to do two things. So it took us some time among like it took us some time in the founding team to get really behind the idea. But once we had the idea, it was like okay, let's do this all in. This is the the thing we've been waiting for. Uh, let's stop everything else, um, and yeah, we, we we went all in on audio. Interesting. Okay. Um, and what what metrics were you guys measuring back then? Like, what was the what was the math or the data behind this decision? Um, so the metrics we looked at were obviously conversion rate. One big assumption was that <clears throat> audio will be perceived as a premium feature, and people are willing to pay for that. Mm -hmm. So conversion rate from free to paid was one thing we measured. And then also activity. So because the other the other assumption we had is that audio just fits better into people's lifestyles these days. So we would see higher frequency of engagement. So people would use it weekly or daily because it better integrates into their lives. So we are really measuring these two things. Do people do more people pay for it? Um, and do people use it more often compared to text only? So you were monetizing from day one? We yeah. That was one of the, the big assumptions we made when we started Blinkist is that we have to prove monetization from day one because we creating content. And in my opinion, the best way to measure if the content is perceived as valuable is to see if people pay for it. Yeah. Um, so Blinkist was always, we did rev, like from the first day uh, when we launched Blinkist, we did revenue. Not much revenue in the beginning, but yeah, monetization was always a key component of our strategy. Oh, absolutely. You know, at, at Penta, we didn't charge for various reasons, uh, but we didn't charge for the first two years after launch. Yeah. And that hurt us with fundraising. Um, I mean, when we started launching, not much, not much really changed, to be fair. But, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I think, like now in my, in my venture, Index Health, which is a medical company, 
Um, we've also charged from day one. It's just critical. And ex even if it's like a hundred dollars that you're getting in or 500, you know, like, Hey, that's paying for this software for that legal bill. Yeah. Like you see it adding up. So yeah, I agree with that. That's super important. It is the, in the end, like every business has to make money at some point. Yeah. And uh, I understand there are some strategies where you build up a use, big user base and start monetizing user base later, but that's maybe 5% of all businesses. Most businesses will charge customers directly and the earlier you start, the, the earlier you see if, if the, pro the product is really valuable enough for people to pay for it. Um, because like this, like deferring payments to later, in my opinion, is also sometimes a sign of weakness or that founders don't believe enough into their own product. So yeah, I think charging customers early on is the best way to prove that you're really building a valuable product and business. 100%. I love it. Totally agree. Um, and how did you guys acquire the first 10, 20, 50, 100 customers? So I think the first 10 customers were family and friends. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was, I always <clears throat> tell the story. So we, we launched in January 2013 and we worked for six months. We worked day and night to get to this launch date. Um, so on January, like at some point in January 2013, we revealed the curtain and launched Blinkist and we had like all these big expectations. We were so pumped. And then after the first day, we had probably five customers. And I think probably three of them were people we knew directly and two others found us through, I don't know, like some PR article maybe. So it was a very humbling experience in terms of, okay, just because you build something, what you think is cool doesn't mean that there will be a lot of people coming and paying for it. So for the first year, um, it was just, yeah, a little bit of PR, trying out different things, going to conferences, trying to do, trying out partnerships. But all of that didn't really scale. Um, we tried basically all different marketing activities over and over again. We tried paid marketing, it didn't work. Then we tried partnerships, it didn't work. Um, we tried kind of marketing, it didn't work back then. And then we tried paid marketing again. Um, and at some point, especially with the, the launch of audio, we found scalable marketing campaigns through Facebook and Instagram back then that were bringing in probably the first yeah, thousands of customers. Interesting. Um... <laughs> that sounds super stressful. So in the beginning when you were trying all these acquisitions, like were you guys just banging your head like why is nothing working? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, much, that's yeah. pretty much how you can summarize the first three years of Blinkist. <laughs> that first how many? The first two, three years of Blinkist were exactly like that, yeah. <laughs> that's a nightmare. But I feel you. Um, yeah. And I mean, how much, how much is your website, was the, like the landing page itself an impact to conversion. So I like at Index Health at Penta as well, we found that the website is like the number one thing to conversion, not even campaigns. Yeah. If for us, um, it was always campaigns that were more important than the landing page. Okay. Um, at least for the beginning, especially because we, the first years we grew a lot through paid marketing. So like direct to consumer marketing on Facebook, Instagram, later Twitter and these platforms. And you have to just, the way these, these formats work is you put an ad into the feed of a person. And some of, of them have heard about Blinkist, others won't have heard about you. So you have like one or two seconds to grab their attention. And so the marketing creative is super, super important in the conversion funnel. Once they clicked on it, obviously the landing page matters, but Blinkist is a mobile product and for many years we had a marketing ad in the feed and then would lead people directly to the app store to download the app. So the landing page didn't play that big of a role for us. Interesting. Okay. I see that. Yeah, that, that does make sense. It's a different type of product as well. Yeah. 
Okay. <clears throat> but I think it's it's always about figuring out what is your like how does your funnel look like um, and try to optimize the first part of the funnel um, and then later go deeper. I think what I see sometimes and also what we um, the mistake we made is that we try to optimize different steps of the funnel at the same time. But the way I think about it today is okay. Figure out what is what is the, the mo where do you lose most of your customers in your funnel? Is it <clears throat> from awareness to to click? Is it from click to sign up? Is it from click to payment, um, or, um, or from sign up to payment? And we optimize the biggest leaks in the funnel first. Usually, the biggest impact is always top of funnel because this is where you still have like like just more people in total. Sure. Um, but it, there's this kind of like, I think tendency to sometimes just trying to optimize the thing that is easiest to optimize, which is often the landing page, because this is the thing that you can control the most. Well, I think you should really look at the biggest leak or the biggest part of the funnel to optimize there. Interesting. First. So what was the biggest leak for you guys? The biggest leak for us was from, um, yeah, obviously from ad to app store. There's obviously some kind of like some churn that is expected. But we also played a lot, we played around a lot with the app store, the presence, the logo, the description. Um, so kind of like maybe like our landing page was the app store in a way um, that that was kind of like a little bit hard to measure because the app store doesn't really give you all the the numbers or the metrics to optimize for it. But there was always where we saw the biggest the biggest potential. The, the biggest drivers for acquisition was always marketing creatives uh, and app store optimization. Interesting. Okay. And what were your biggest failures? Biggest failures. Like things um, that just did not work. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, there are like a lot of things that did not work. Um, years <laughs> <laughs> also after that, so I probably if you, if you look at it, the the most success, successful feature we ever launched was audio because that put the company on a new trajectory. Yep. And also helped us to to enter this the audio market was booming at that time. And I think 2014, 2015, we were one of the very first audio products. Um, this was still before podcasts became so popular again. So that's probably like in hindsight, the most important decision we ever made and the, the most successful feature we ever built. And after that, we tried a lot of different things. Um, we tried to build community features into Blinkist that didn't work back then. Mm. Um, we, we launched audiobooks two or three years ago, which are an important part of the product experience. And we see customers finding the Blinks on Blinkist and then um, buying the full audiobook. But it was not a game changer in the trajectory as, as audio was, for example. So I would say there were a lot of things we tried um, and many things didn't work out. Interesting. And, and how much has the company changed from, let's say, the moment product market fit hit until today, 10 years later? <clears throat> so yeah, the product market, like finding product market fit, um, that was really the time when we started scaling. So back then, based on this initial data, we raised the Series A with Greycroft and Headline. Um, and then... I think triple the team in the, in, the, in the year after the Series A, triple the revenue in the year after the Series A, and really started building out more functions. So from this 10 people, everyone's working a little bit on everything. We started having a proper content team, a proper paid marketing team, a proper, proper product and tech team. And then it became much more about like roadmaps and aligning roadmaps between marketing and, and tech, for example. But yeah, we started really hiring more experts. Um, but but, but the core, the core money-making machine, or let's say the flywheel, as Jim Collins would call it, right, is still, is still the audio-based books yeah. that you guys were like the yeah. original product market fit concept. In other words, 
Yeah, so it's still the subscription. So maybe that should have said this earlier, but we monetize through a monthly or annual subscription. Yep. And the Coffly will still require um, users either on paid marketing or through organic channels. Uh, they convert to, to paying members um, and we reinvest that money into more marketing activities. Interesting, yeah. I, find, I always find it interesting how, how that one key moment ultimately defines the trajectory of a business even 10 years later. It's crazy. Yeah, insane. So it's, yeah. Like you don't well, see a lot of, like Airbnb, it hasn't really changed from the moment they found product market fit, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. Right. It, I think, for that matter, right? Yeah. yeah, I think you can, like in the end, probably, like there's probably also some Pareto's law um, active in all these companies that 20, 30% of what you do will deliver 80% of the value in the revenue. Yep. And it's just finding this one thing that works and that, that's scalable. And then, yeah, really be obsessed with scaling the product market fit. Obviously, as you grow, um, you want to maybe also expand. You want to find new markets where either the existing product will work or where you just have like small adaptions of the product that can serve this market. I think is what Airbnb does so well is they started this with this, I don't know, maybe it was like maybe business travel in the beginning uh, they focused on or maybe more, no, probably more private weekend trips. And then they saw, okay, these people might also need a business trip. So they, they built a new program on business travel. Um, and then they, they expand it into families. So, and for them, it's always not just building the website, but also um, sourcing the inventory that fits to that fits for a family, for example. And I think they have been very systematically about scaling existing product market fit, but also expanding product market fit by adopting the product for new markets. Yeah, um, they were fortifying. They were fortifying like what worked. They were just making yeah. that better and better. In other words, yeah. Yeah, because also like in the end. I think one thing that a lot of founders, um, they, or they like, like sometimes when you look at product market fit, the thing that doesn't get enough attention sometimes is the, the part of the market. So people are very focused on the product, but they don't really understand their market in depth. So they don't understand what is the segment of the market that I'm really going after, because you usually don't go after the whole market. You always go after a segment in the market. Um, so they don't understand what is the segment they go after. And second, they also don't understand how big is the segment they go after. Um, What's an example of that? Well, I think like for example, like a lot of companies that um, scale through, especially in consumer world, that scale through pro pro uh, paid marketing, um, where you just basically use um, lookalike audiences for, for scaling, for example, is you get a lot of traffic from Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but you don't really understand who are these people. Facebook is the platform who understands who are these people, but they don't give you that data. So you basically build a machine that converts, but you don't know exactly who you converted. Um, and one concept I like a lot is this, this product, product market fit engine that the superhuman founder created. There are like tons of articles um, on it on the internet where it's not just about like measuring product market fit with a product market fit score, but also asking a few follow-up questions around intended use case, demographics, and which features they like and which features they don't like to really be able to segment user your product market like user base into different buckets and understand where do we have product market fit where don't we have product market fit and what do we need to do in order to get this group to product market fit and i think it helps you to not only be more systematic in your program map because you say do i want to focus on making the product better for the people that already love the product or do i want to make the product better for people who might love the product if we have xyz so this is one thing, but the other thing that is also helps you to fi figure out who are my 
real customers and where do I find more of them? So it's not just like, um, oh yeah, I just go after this market, but I go after a specific su subset um, of users in this market. For Blinkist, um, in the beginning, it was a lot about consultants and coaches. So um, technically, we would say we have a very big market, everyone who reads nonfiction books in our market. But the subsegment that worked best for us in the beginning were people that have read that have to read books for their professional activities. So as a consultant or as a coach, you have to read all these books because you you always have to engage in conversations with your clients. Um, and they use Blinkist really to source a lot of different ideas that they then can use um, for their yeah, for the client meetings. Um, and that was the first probably segment that we found product market fit with. Um, with Blinkist. And then obviously you, you expand, you go after adjacent groups, you broaden up the content library so that it's not just like coaches but also uh, managers. And then um, you go at, at some point you go into curious people that just want to learn for life, like they, or like lifelong learners that just want to learn new things and basically be entertained while learning. So I think it's really important to understand, not just look at the market as, as a whole thing, but segment the market into two smaller buckets. That's a great point. I love how you mentioned the superhuman article. I'll, I'll actually add that in the notes of this, yeah. of this recording. But yeah, that article is is fantastic for, I mean, for those at growth. I find like a, a big problem to find product market fit even is is getting the initial fifty people, ten people, hundred people, whatever it may be, to like just give me some output ultimately um, or yeah. you know input. So, but I yeah. agree, it's friends and family. Yeah. Yep, go on, yeah. go on. No, I also like what I like is this this concept, this this article, this concept was the first time I saw a more systematic approach towards uh, for building towards product market fit. Same. Because before then it was more oh yeah product market fit you know when you hit it, um, and it's kind of true. It's 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 a very opaque topic, but you know when you have it, you see it because suddenly things get easier. Things that you struggled with before suddenly work. Um, there's a pull for your product. It's very hard to define it, but it's very hard to give it a metric. But it's a feeling you you have, but it's very it's very opaque and not very actionable. And the superhuman articles, the first time I saw someone who really thought about how can I measure it, and he's using this product market fit survey score from Sean Ellis. Yep. But also, how can I go deeper to really use the insights to influence or to shape my product roadmap? Um, and I think this is a, probably the article that every founder needs to read, and in my opinion, right now is the gold standard to for building towards product market fit. 100%. I've read that article multiple times and uh, we yeah. actually use that. I don't believe in NPS too much. Um, I think it's somewhat of a good measurement score, but I think the Sean Ellis product market fit score just tells you so much more. Yes. I think it's always, it's just always for me, it's one piece. So it's more the quantitative side of it. And then you want to enrich that also with like user feedback and really deep understanding of the needs and the priorities of your customers. But it really helps you yeah, to navigate this, this very opaque phase of finding, finding product market fit. Yeah. And so as a closing question, um, we're just kind of looking to wrap it up. What is a book? So you'd recommend the Superhuman article, right? But what is yeah. a book that you'd recommend that all founders should read? Um, that all founders should read about product market fit or in general? About company building ultimately to yeah. help them, you know, yeah. So I think like when it comes to product market fit, Still, for me, one of the most important books is Crossing the Chasm, and I think it's so important because it, it yep. because it, it explains this this the idea of product market fit and expanding product market fit into adjacent and, like, and then expanding into adjacent user groups. And I think yeah, the core here is 
it's kind of like it's, it's a it's a distribution of of different. Or you have different types of of customers. You have some early adopters, and then you have more like like the mass market and late adopters. And you basically jump from segment to segment to segment, and you always have to understand how do I get from my early adopters to the mass market. And I think this is really important when you think about expanding product market fit. In terms of company building, um, I'm still a fan of books like The Rockefeller Habit or um, Traction by Gene Wickman. What, what is the first one? Uh, Rockefeller Habits mm -hmm. um, okay. or Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, I think. It's just like an attempt to help you build an operating system for your company that can repeatedly produce results. Um, because I think this, the same way as product market fit is sometimes not really approached systematically, also company building is often not approached systematically. And um, you probably see the pattern here. <laughs> I like sure. books or concepts that create systems that you can scale. Yeah, 100%. I never heard of, I, I know across the chasm, um, I don't know the Rockefeller habits though. I'll, I'll oh, add yeah. all those to the notes. Yeah, there's, there's also a new version of the book. Uh, the Rockefeller habits was written in the 90s. There was an updated version. I'm blanking on the name right now. But um, I will I will send you the name later. You can add it to the show notes. And just out of curiosity, did you read this or did you listen to it over Blinkist? No, I read read all of them. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I still read a lot of books, so um, that's true for me, but also true for a lot of Blinkist users. Is that Blinkist doesn't replace books? Sure. It's it's a different way of engaging with the content of books, and for many people, it actually even needs leads to reading more books because they discover books they haven't heard about before. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree with that. I love to read, but I also like to listen. Whether it's a yeah. podcast or a book, like you said, on Blinkist, whatever it may be. I like different types of um, engagement with it. If I'm walking, I can't read, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> but I could listen, right? It's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that's where Blinkist comes into play, right? Um, at least for me, but so, yeah. yeah, it doesn't make sense. But it, it was just more curiosity. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we, before we close this up? Um, maybe just like a quick update. Um, I'm also now a founding partner at a, at a venture fund called Interface Capital. We back early stage founders, product-driven founders. So whoever listens to this and is building a company or product and is on his way or her way to product market fit, I would love to hear from you. Great. Um, sounds good. I'll add that also in the comments. Yeah, sorry. Um, Douglas, thanks a lot for taking the time to chat. Thank you. Um, have a great day.